0: begin with our motivation, so it's quite important when we're uh, listening to teachings that we're all on the same page in terms of our motivation, that all of us are seeking to learn how to work with our minds, how to subdue our afflictions, how to enrich our good qualities how to accomplish the path to supreme awakening. So it's important for everybody involved in the teachings to have that kind of motivation and to be really united in terms of our, our hearts and what we, we seek. So with that kind of attitude, and that's with delight, Listen to the teachings so that we can then put them into practice. Okay. So last week we uh, talked about. You know, how to do the the meditation session. We had finished the six preliminaries. Then we talked about uh, remembering the topic we're gonna meditate on, the points of the topic, you know, and so on, and how to cycle through the different la uh, meditations. And then we also talked about what to do in the break time. Yeah, how to eat, how to sleep, yeah. How to uh, you know the importance of keeping uh, our mind on the same topic that we're meditating on instead of just spacing out and doing all sorts of other things, yeah? Because what we do in the break time influences how our meditation sessions go. Okay, so we finish that, uh, yeah, and. We talked a little bit also about um, the importance of developing both analytical meditation and stabilizing meditation, and how to do that using the long topics, doing analytical meditation on them, and then stabilizing meditation on the conclusion that we reach at the end. But how the teachings on uh, how to generate serenity there, we're doing stabilizing meditation. Okay? We would only do analytic there if we need to um, uh, refresh our mind about one of the disadvantages or the antidotes to uh, the various hindrances that interrupt uh, serenity. Okay? So now we're reaching the, the fourth big outline of the text. Which, uh, or another big outline of the text, I should say, not necessarily the fourth, is having relied upon the spiritual masters, how to progressively train our mind. Okay, and so this begins with uh, exhortation hmm. to draw full advantage from a human rebirth with freedom and fortune, and. Uh, how to draw full advantage from that one. So first we have to talk about how to identify freedom and fortune, uh, contemplating their meaning, their potential, and contemplating why they're difficult to, uh, to attain. Okay. So this is the whole meditation on precious human life. So the thing is that all human life is not necessarily precious a precious human life okay because you have to have these eight freedoms and ten fortunes in order to have a precious human life because otherwise you could be born as a human being yeah and like most human beings are on this planet and have no interest in in spiritual matters in dharma practice and so on and so just having a human body does not give you a precious human life. You have to have these 18 factors. Okay, So it's interesting, when we go through this, to see if we have the 18 factors or not. Okay, So the 18 factors are divided into um, eight situations that we're free from and 10 situations that we're fortunate to have. And so the eight freedoms are, uh, in turn, um, divided into um, the being free from the four non-human states, and having, and then being free from uh, four human states. Okay, so in this outline, they're they're um, talking first about the. Uh, four human states that were free of being born in. So being born in a distant land with incomplete senses, holding wrong views, and where the uh, conqueror's teaching is not found are the four non-human, are the four human non-liber- non-freedoms, okay? So um, being born in a distant land is... Um, being born in, in a among an unciv, uncivilized savages, in a country uh, where uh, any kind of spiritual practice is is either outlawed or um, ignored, so a very barbaric t- type of society. Okay. Now we all proud pride ourselves on not being uh, not living in a barbaric uh, society. <laughs> but I wonder sometimes. Okay, <laughs> yeah. And then the the second one is um, being born with incomplete senses. So this is usually explained as um, being uh, mentally mentally incapacitated, or deaf, dumb, or blind. Yeah. Now in. recent years people have been saying but why you know are deaf and being deaf and blind uh, hindrances why don't you have a precious human life if you have all the others and I think it's because in ancient times when the Buddha was alive if you were blind there was no remedy you know and they didn't have braille Um, they didn't have uh, all the different things that blind people have now so that they can really study and learn and do wonderful things. So, uh, you know, in ancient times if you were blind it was just kind of forget it and I think the same with people who were deaf. Whereas now, you know, there's so many uh, treatments for being deaf and there's different things people can do in order to learn and function very well in society. So it, you know, it's... You really can't say that those are as great impediments as they were in previous times. I think being um, have into, having intellectual disabilities, though, that is a, is an impediment because it makes some um, it makes it hard to understand what the teachings are. Yeah, so that that kind of thing can be a an impediment because you can hear the teachings, but you can't understand them. Okay, and then uh, the third one is holding wrong views. So this is uh, actually the worst of them, you know. It's, it's strange because when we hear about wrong views, they don't seem so bad because we know so many people who have them and we've probably had them ourselves, you know. It's like, oh, wrong views, no big deal, you know. But when you really think about it, if you have wrong views, it it cuts you off from any interest in the Dharma, so you don't go to teachings, you don't explore things. Even if somebody tells you something, you just shine it on and forget it. Yeah, so you don't take the teaching seriously. And then some people say, well, "Well, so what? You know, well, as we've been studying, you know, in the Precious Garland." If we have a mind that uh, disparages the teachings, especially the teachings on emptiness, then we create a lot of negative karma because we give our we fall to a nihilistic position, don't think about you know cause and effect, and then give ourselves permission to just do whatever we want, and in that way we create a ton of negative karma. Okay. So it's not like when we hear about the disadvantages of wrong views, we shouldn't think like people are punished for being not believing in the Dharma. It's not a a thing of being punished, but it's just, you know, if you think, okay, when the mind is very closed and it doesn't have certain beliefs and when it has other beliefs, then that influences how you live your life and how you relate to other people. And you know what you consider ethical conduct, and so it's in that way that those wrong views really put so uh, much limit, uh, limit so many limitations on someone in terms of their spiritual practice. Okay, so it's not the thing of you know you're getting punished by Buddha if you don't believe in Buddhism and you know. don't. Don't put things from other religions in, into Buddhism. If that's not the case. And then the the fourth, uh, not human, the fourth human, uh, non-free state is being uh, is living where the conqueror's teachings are not found. When they talk about the conqueror, it means the Buddha because he's con- conquered the afflictions. So this is a place where. Uh, you know, a wheel turning Buddha has not descended. So, wheel turning Buddha is like Shakyamuni Buddha, who teaches the Dharma at a historical time where it's not present in the world. Yeah. So, if you were born before the Buddha appeared, you might have a lot of spiritual interest, but there's no teachings there for you. So, when you meditate on any of these. Um, The way to meditate is you imagine having that kind of birth. You really, um, you know, become that kind of person, and then imagine living your life like that and thinking and think you know, how can I practice the Dharma? Yeah. If if I live in a very barbaric country where religion is shorn, how do I practice the Dharma? If I'm mentally incapacitated, how do I practice? If you know, and do so you imagine, though, you know, being born like that? Because we have been born like that in the past, and then just you know, saying how do I, how do you practice Dharma? Yeah, I mean, you might be born in Bogaya and and have the Dalai Lama walk right past you, but yeah, if you have these kind of mental handicaps, let's say, then. It does you know, it's like any old person and you know, you don't care where you live or, or who walks by you or what they're teaching at the temple and what's being played over the loudspeaker. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's really kind of be those people and then say, you know, if I was born like that, then what? And then come back to being who you are right now and really feel the lack of having that kind of impediment and feel very joyful i mean really rejoice about it okay so this is how you meditate on it you have to do the meditation <laughs> yeah but it's very effective when you do and you really you know put your shoe yourself in the shoes of somebody you know like this and see what it's like you know and because you know, we could be born like that. I mean, we have been born like that in the in the past. We could be born like that in the future. And so, thinking like that also inspires us to uh, be uh, very careful about the karma that we create, so we don't have that kind of rebirth in the future. Okay. Then there's um, four non-human states that we're you know we want to check and see if we're we're freed from. So the text says uh, along with rebirth is a long life God, or in the three lower realms there are eight. Lacking these, it is taught, constitutes the freedoms. Okay, so the four non-human states. First one, being born as a hell being. Yeah. So really imagine that, that you're born in that kind of realm yeah. where it's physical pain and suffering. If you can't imagine... That or just the idea of it, if it was too much for you, then imagine being born as a human being in a war zone. Yeah? Where you're fearing for your life. You can't even go out to the market to get vegetables because you don't know if you're going to come back alive because there might be a suicide bomber there, there might be a bomb falling from, you know, Planes above you, or who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. So living in a place where there's uh, intense physical suffering, or you know, imagine being very, very ill and not being able to to focus on the Dharma, because that's one of the disadvantages. I mean, the primary thing about being born is in the hell rooms is the mind is so occupied with physical pain that there's no mental space to think about the Dharma. Okay, and so similarly being born as a preta or a hungry ghost, the mind is so preoccupied with being hungry and craving that there's no space in that mind for the Dharma. And so, you know, think of being born as somebody who's just hungry, you know, and you can't get food and you know they say that that the pretas run all over looking for food and whenever they get somewhere the food just either vanishes you know on them or they get it in their mouth and it turns to pus and blood or they start to swallow it and it becomes like hot burning metal you know in their stomach and so just imagine you know having some kind of delicate body like that where you're constantly craving but what you know what you crave causes you so much pain
1: yeah.
0: and then the third one is being free from being born as an animal yeah so think of the grasshoppers out in the meadow okay or the stink bugs around the house or the chipmunks you know, that are getting chased by, by the kitties, or, you know, being a deer that's being shot at by the hunters. Uh, I, I always think of the donkeys in India. I mean, it's just so awful how, how they're big beasts of burden and they're whipped and beaten and have to carry heavy things. And then also just not only how the animals are physically um, abused, but how they can't think properly yeah they 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 have a mind but the physical basis is such that there's no way they can really use their mind in any constructive way yeah. so we have our three kitties listening to teachings tonight but like what are they getting out of it you know they're getting some imprint but you know they're uh, as uh, Karuna wrote in his in her letter to me, you know, she doesn't get it, the teachings, but she gets a nice nap during the teachings. Okay, yeah. So you know, imagine being born in that kind of body where you have that kind of limitation. Yeah. So it it's very interesting when you really meditate on the these three lower realms, the three unfortunate states. To see how, you know, the hell realm corresponds with anger, the results of anger, the hungry ghost realm with the results of attachment and craving, and the animal realm, you know, the results of ignorance. And just see, you know, think about how that a certain mental state creates your body in a certain environment. Yeah, and it really, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, that, let's say you're a human being and you're you're just seething with anger all the time and lashing out at people, then, you know, you're putting so much anger and suspicion and distrust and vengeance in your own mind that you're born in an environment with all those qualities. Yeah? Yeah. Or same with somebody who's very greedy, who's just, you know, I want more, I want better, give me this, give me that. And then, you know, can't ever get any satisfaction. They always want more and better. And, you know, makes sense to be born in the hungry ghost realm, doesn't it? Yeah? Or your whole environment. and. The whole way you live is just more and better and you you never get anything that truly satisfies you. And then similarly, you know, when we make ourselves really dumb, you know, sleeping too much, spacing out, um, you know, doing stupid things with our mind, you know, putting our mind in, in stupid places to think about stupid things, yeah. Then, then being born as an animal who can't think properly, you know, can't use their intelligence, or well, doesn't have much intelligence. And then the fourth non-human state is to be a, a long-lived god. So this actually includes all the gods, but especially there's uh, in the fourth uh, material god realm, you know, there you have the four. Uh, jhanas, you know, in the fourth one, there, there's one uh, kind of long-lived God who lacks discrimination, and so they only recognize when they're born, and they recognize when they die, and the rest of the time they're involved in this meditative uh, state where there's no discrimination, I mean, just totally spaced out, incorporated. Okay? Um, yeah? almost kind of like drugged in a way and so you can see that even though that's considered an upper rebirth as they've been born in the material realm or form realm um the mind is you know they can't use their mind to do anything useful again yeah okay so it's it's important to really um, you know, like I said, in in your meditation, become go through these one by one, and really become somebody who is that kind of being, and imagine what it's like to live like that, and then come back to your to being yourself, and seeing the incredible freedom you have, you know, and the incredible abilities. So this this kind of meditation is quite good to do when you're lacking in self-confidence because it shows you very clearly how much you have going for you. Okay? And how it's uh, really wrong to put yourself down. And, you know, and as we go through this more and more, you begin to understand how, you know, whoever we were in a previous life, worked in many, many previous lives, worked very, very hard in order to create the causes for this present opportunity. So we shouldn't disparage ourselves, you know, and think, you know, I can't do it, it's too hard, why try, blah, blah. I mean, you know how we get all the time. So, you know, when you really think about this, then it gives you some inner strength to put a stop. To all that kind of conceptualization that gets in the way of using your, your precious human life. Okay. What
1: is the cause to
0: be in that kind of God realm? The cause is attaining that level of concentration as a human being. Yeah, being attached to it, not having renunciation of cyclic existence, not uh, understanding emptiness. Okay, then there's um, there's the ten fortunes. Yeah, and so these have five personal good fortunes, and then five um, general good fortunes, or yeah, five personal factors and five factors that have to do with society. Okay? So first is being born as a human being. Yeah? And so, you know, really appreciating being born as a human being. Um, you know, that we have human intelligence. His Holiness speaks about this a lot about the preciousness of human intelligence, you know, and how if we use human intelligence wisely, we can do so many amazing things. But equally, if we use it unwisely, we can do so many amazingly negative things, okay? But just having this human intelligence, which is based on having a human body, is is very precious. Again, because you can see having human intelligence, you can be here and listen to the teachings. Yeah, the stink bugs, the grasshoppers, the kitties, the moose, the bear. You know, no possibility uh, for them. They rely completely on uh, the happenstance circumstance of, you know, hearing some dharma by the by, you know. Like the, the turkeys maybe being near the house while we're chanting in it and they hear some mantra. But aside from that, you know, talk about, you know, look at the turkeys, They're a perfect opportunity to live in a monastery. You know, they don't have any financial problems. They don't have any family problems keeping them back. They can come live at a monastery. Uh, but what do they understand? You know, very little, you know? I mean, that's why they're called bird brains. <laughs> yeah, you know the expression bird brain, you understand it when you think of of the turkeys. Yeah? It's quite It's quite pitiful when you think about it. Okay, so the first one's being born as a human being, and then the second is being born in a central land, okay? So there's different ways of defining a central land. One is geographically, where you uh, you say the central land, you know, the center is Bogaya, and then you know, the whole continent of Jambuvipa. This is according to ancient cosmology. Cosmology. You can also define a central land uh, religiously. So according to the Vinaya, it's where you have the fourfold sangha, fully ordained monks, fully ordained nuns, uh, you know, uh, lay followers with male lay followers and female lay followers. Okay, so bhikshu, bhikshuni, upasika, upasaka. Okay, so that's the fourfold assembly. Yeah. So then, that's where the whole discussion comes in. Do the do. Does Tibetan Buddhism, and where it exists, have the fourfold assembly? Okay, So actually, they're missing the bhikshuni sangha. And they don't. But they say, well, the bhikshu sangha is the primary one. So that makes up for it. So it's still a central land. But when you really push a little bit, maybe they'll admit, no, it's not not really a central land. Okay, So then the question comes up, well, why is it so important? To have communities of monastics, and why is it so important to have male and female uh, lay people to, you know, to have the fourfold assembly? Why can't you say that it's a central land just because there's some people, however many there are, uh, practicing the Dharma there? Okay. So, um, in terms of the the bhikshu and bhikshuni sanghas you need four fully ordained people to make that sangha so it's not just one person and you can see you know in the development of the abbey how there's there was a time when there was one bhikshuni then two bhikshunis then three bhikshunis then four bhikshunis and how something changed as when we got four bhikshunis because then we could do the posada, we could do varsa, we could do pravarana, and how those ceremonies really bring people together as a group, how they make a monastic community and make a place where the Dharma is visible in the world. You know, if you're one monastic or one lay person, you live in, a, in an apartment or a house by yourself, nobody knows you're there. Wherever you live, you know, you're not doing any special ceremonies or rites to create community and, you know, in, in that way, in a visible way. So people walk right by, they don't notice, they, they don't think of your place as a holy place. Yeah, But when you have a monastic community that does these rites, then for the sake of you know, people in society say, Oh there's a group of people who are really practicing, and they're keeping pure ethical conduct, they're doing these Vinaya rites, they're meditating on love and compassion, they're there in a group, practicing, training together. We can think of them, you know, when we have our spiritual crises, we can think of these people that we can go up and meet, we can think of the place where they are, where we can go and stay and live with them and experience the Dharma life. And so, you know, there's something special about having a community that you don't have when you're a single monastic. Yeah, or even you're a lay teacher, you're, you know, living in a family life. You don't have that physical environment that... That can attract people to the Dharma. That lets people know that this is a space where something very different is happening. Okay, so that's why it's important to have the sangha and to have make sure that that sangha community does at least those three rites. Okay, the the fortnightly confession, the rains retreat, and the invitation at the end end of the rains retreat. Some people uh, had been writing me and asking me about bhikshuni ordination and wanting to go to Taiwan and asking for advice. And I happened to write something up about it to send to them. And in it, I really emphasized the importance of being in a community after you ordain. Because otherwise, you ordain, you go back, you're living in an apartment on your own, Nothing's really changed. You don't get the training. There's not enough people. You know, the energy of so many people practicing together really changes things. Yeah, and uh, especially as a new monastic, you don't have that energy yourself to, to you know, be able to really keep the discipline. Okay, and we so you know we need this the. the the bhikshu and the bhikshuni sangha. And we also need ma- male and female lay people. They're just as important also. Yeah. So these are lay followers, people who have taken refuge in the Buddha and optimally have taken all five precepts. Okay. So they're people who are really grounded in the Dharma, who keep good ethical conduct, who want to practice well as lay people, who want to support the sangha. Yeah, and so the, these people too have a very important role to, sp- to play in the existence and spread of the Dharma because they're the people who are going to attract new lay followers, you know, and who the, the new lay followers are going to be practicing with initially and then maybe some of those lay followers will later ordain. Yeah. But the the um, male and, and female lay practitioners very important, yeah. And so we need all four for groups for there to be a central land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you need four
1: big shoes and
0: four big shunis. Four big shoes or four big shunis. Is
1: there a minimum amount of lay people?
0: I've never heard any limits on um, the number of lay people now. Yeah. Because the, the four in terms of the monastics is so you can do those rites. With the lay people there's not special rites they do, but you know clearly you need a group of some sort to, you know, they, they carry that energy and they welcome new people into the Dharma, they bring their relatives, they bring their friends. Okay. Then you can also, another way um, according religiously to discern a central land is uh, in the Mahayana, it's where you have uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and where the perfection of wisdom sutras are taught. Okay. Yeah. And then um, having complete senses. So uh, again you know you have a, especially a sound mind you don't uh, have are not intellectually handicapped or um, you know completely insane where there's no way to, to think about things rationally um, your organs are, are complete you know you can see and and all of those kinds of things and uh, And they also say too with sexual organs that you know the sexual organs are complete, uh, you know, and the the reason for this is that if somebody has uh, is has improper sexual organs or unusual maybe sexual organs or both sexual organs, then it's difficult for them to ordain if they want to. So they you know because when you ordain you have to either Ordain into the bhikshu or the bhikshuni sangha. They don't have an intermediate one. Okay, so you know I don't know if a social movement could today could make them have a you know uh, an intermediate one. But usually it's you know it's got to be one or the other. So if there's something like that, then uh, you know people cannot ordain as monastics. Um, okay. Then the next thing is that somebody hasn't committed what they call the five heinous actions, or sometimes it's irremedial karma. Okay, irre, irre, irremedial karma, Ir, irremediable yeah. karma. In other words, karma that is very heavy. That, according to the Sutrayana, no, according to. The, the fundamental vehicle you cannot purify in that life. Okay? So the, um, the five heinous actions are um, killing your mother, killing your father, killing an arhat, causing schism in the Sangha, and drawing blood from the Buddha. Okay? So those are said to be five extremely negative actions, so negative that according to the, in the fundamental vehicle teachings, you can't purify them in this life and at the time of death you automatically go to a lower realm. Okay? So having the fortune of not, uh, you know, of uh, kind of not having done that. (laughs) Okay? Yeah? So, uh, you know, according, like I said, according to the fundamental vehicle, It it says it's so difficult to purify that that it makes it creates a big obstacle for uh, for becoming an arhat. Um, You know, in the Mahayana, especially in Vajrayana, they say it can be uh, purified in that very lifetime. Okay, and then um, having faith in the three baskets of teachings. Okay, so the three baskets, we you know the vinaya basket the sutra basket the abhidharma basket okay and so those are, are three ways of categorizing the topics that the buddha talked about the vinaya is about the monastic code and ethical conduct sutra corresponds with uh, so the, so the vinaya is with the higher training and ethical conduct the sutra basket is uh, corresponds to the higher training in in concentration. But it isn't limited. Don't think that it's just sutras that teach, teach concentration. It's not. It's the sutras, like with the general bodhisattva practice, and so on. And then the Abhidharma, which corresponds to the uh, higher training of wisdom. Yeah. And so being somebody who has faith in, in those Three, you know, faith in the Buddha's teachings with the three baskets. Okay. So it's it's somebody who has some faith, who has respect for holy beings. Yeah, who has respect we for six. huh? Are you, doing,
1: are you doing number six?
0: No, this is number five. Okay, being born human in a central land, yeah. complete sources, yeah. not having the committed the five heinous actions and then this one is you know with faith faith in the tripitaka and with respect for holy beings yeah so it's something that you know you have in your heart some you're drawn to the dharma in some way you have some faith some aspiration some attraction okay now that That's an interesting one, because you know, if I look at my life, have I always had that? no you know i've I've usually had some kind of spiritual questioning going on, but I've also gone through times in my life where I was just rebellious against anything and everything, and you know, after I studied religion in college and saw how many people were killed in the name of God. I just threw religion out, you know, and said, "Who needs it?" Okay, so uh, you know, to to really you know look at that part of ourselves that that has respect for the teachings and the teacher that's interested in the Dharma, and to see that that's not a quality that everybody in the world has, you know, and that we're actually quite fortunate, especially here living in a community, to meet people who understand that part of us. Because I don't know about you, but the place I grew up, yeah, people didn't understand the spiritual part of me at all. You know? And, uh... You know, I was kind of told to forget about this whole thing. And, uh... You know, no, not, not a nurturing spiritual environment. Of course, there was religion there, but when I went to ask questions, you know, people said, "Don't ask those kind of questions," or "It's a mystery," or "Just believe," or you know, whatever they said. Okay, so you know, to respect that part of us that is really sincerely interested in the Dharma and wants to learn and wants to practice and has faith. Yeah? And to, to really respect our Dharma friends. You know? And so that's why, you know, because sometimes in, in different Dharma centers when I travel, you know, people in Dharma centers sometimes don't get along very well. But it's like, wait a minute, everybody. These are the people who understand that very precious sensitive part of you that the rest of the world doesn't understand and they understand it and they support it and they want to hear teachings together with you why in the world are you fighting you know it doesn't make any sense because it's so difficult to meet dharma people who who have that same interest and You know, internal quality that you do. So we need to really cherish each other and respect each other and respect ourselves because we have that interest. Yeah? So to, you know, instead of, you know, saying, oh, it's just my crazy ideas, you know, what am I thinking, like what other people tell you, you know? To, but, to really respect your interest in the Dharma, yeah, it's a very precious part of you, and you should respect it and nurture it and treasure it, and live with that in your heart. You know, And other people may say, "Oh, just get over it, forget it. What in the world are you thinking? You know, come back and be normal with us. Yeah. (laughs) Do you really want to be normal with those people? No. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, respect yourself and respect your Dharma friends, you know, because it's hard to have that kind of interest. And especially, you know, you look at all of our backgrounds. Yeah. Most of us weren't born in a Buddhist society. Where we learned the Dharma when we were little, where we were taken to the temple when we were little and you know and taught things about the Dharma. Somehow, you know, we grew up in, in many ways a barbaric land. And and somehow there was that karma and some strong aspiration from the past past and we managed to find the dharma this life. But how incredibly miraculous it is that we found the dharma. You know, when I look at at the way in the community I grew up in, it's like, you know, that's why I was so surprised when I, you know, when I met Alan Wallace, because we we went through through middle school and high school together, and it's like, how did two people growing up in that community come out as Buddhists? You know. 'Cause the whole community was just like anything but that. Okay? And so each of us has our own stories, you know, and in our, our background of what we were exposed to. And yet there was this interest in the Dharma, this Dharma jewel inside of us somehow, yeah, that was we wound up being able to meet something on the external that supported it so we could receive teachings and practice and so on. Yeah? But without that kind of interest and predisposition inside, forget it. You know? You go to Bhagaia and, you know, there are all these people selling Buddhist trinkets, and no faith in the Dharma, no interest about who's there teaching. yeah similarly you know in South India where we go every year then you get all these beggars and they're just there you know because it's good begging yeah but but no kind of faith or interest or anything. you know it's really very sad because they're so close and, and so far away. Mm-hmm. okay. Then there's five factors from the side of society. Okay, so one is um, where the Buddha has uh, has appeared. So a wheel turning Buddha like Shakyamuni Buddha has appeared, and second that he's taught the Dharma. Okay, and third where his teachings have been maintained. Okay, so you can going back to the first. What would it be like? To be born in a place, you know, before where there's no wheel turning Buddha. Yeah, where there's no teachings. Yeah. Or maybe you were born during the time of the Buddha. Like remember his his two first teachers who taught him the concentration practices? But when he went to teach them the Dharma, they had already died. So they were alive. The Buddha was there, but he hadn't taught yet. So missed out. And you think of like how much good karma somebody has to have created to be born at a time when the Buddha's appeared, where he's taught, and then the third one where the teachings have been maintained. And you really think of the difficulties of maintaining the teachings. Yeah, I mean, Buddhism is still here 25, 26 Hundred years later, but how many times throughout history has the existence of the Dharma been endangered by war, by famine, by all sorts of things? Yeah, and so very difficult to to be in a place where the the um, teachings still exist, where they're stable. Okay. Where um, and so where you have both the scriptural or transmitted dharma, you know, so you have the the teachings and the Tripitaka, the canon, and so on, and where you also have the realizational dharma. So the um, realizations that come from practice. So it doesn't mean we personally have all the transmitted dharma and realizational dharma, but where it exists in society. So if we want teachings, we can go out and, you know, there's people with all the lineages, with all the teachings who can teach us. There's people who have the realizations of the three higher trainings, you know, of the true paths and true cessations, who can teach us, who can monitor our meditation and so on. Yeah. And there's a a tradition still alive of living masters who can... Impart the teachings to us orally and by their living example. Okay, and so having this lineage of masters, either of the the transmitted Dharma who can teach us, or the lineage of masters of the realizational Dharma people who have meditated and gained realizations, um, it's very important, you know, because when we meet these people, then we can. Um, we can be assured that we've met with the authentic Dharma. Yeah? And especially when you think of, of meeting teachers that have the t- different tantric lineages, you know, who can, when we're prepared, who can give us initiation and guide us in that practice, very, very difficult to have that kind of for- fortunate situation. yeah. So you, you think of how many places in the world you could have been born, where the, the situation wasn't existent at all. You know And you even think of, of like Tibet and China during the Cultural Revolution, yeah, where they were burning scriptures, where if they saw you moving your mouth, saying prayers or chanting mantra, they would beat you or throw you in prison. Yeah. Where I mean, forget about any kind of religious freedom. I met one um, one lama. He was from a, a a well-to-do family in Tibet. When the Cultural Revolution came, they imprisoned him. They they took away his family's house, and he became an, in imprisoned in the house as an inmate because they changed the house into a prison. Yeah, so he was an amazing person. He. He did retreat the whole time he was in prison. He couldn't move his lips. He couldn't use any text. He only had to do, you know, could only use what he had memorized. And of course he he couldn't have a mallet to count his mantras. So he would see, you know, where the sun was and estimate how many mantras he had said and so on. You know, but really living in a place where the teachings have been maintained and where we have the religious freedom to practice. Yeah. I mean, imagine being born in a, in a country where they won't let you leave the country and they won't let you practice any other religion within the country. Yeah. I mean, I have one Dharma friend who was who was born and grew up in Saudi Arabia. And I don't know how she got out. Yeah, but She she has a, you know, she's very strong inside because that's what it took to get out of that kind of situation. Okay? So, um, you know, to to think of of our privilege and our fortune in this way. And then I also think, you know, my friend Alex Berzin told me, uh, because he used to go to the communist countries when they were still communist uh, and teach there and you know everything you had to do there to, so that you didn't get busted by the police for teaching the dharma and i even saw that sometimes when i went to uh to china yeah i had some encounters with the chinese police who were you know upset with me and uh you yeah. know i was giving out blessed pills in one of the temples and you know they rounded me up and I had to sign a confession and the whole thing before they let me go. And all I was doing was passing out money pills. Yeah. So imagine, you know, and you if you've done any reading about the Cultural Revolution, you know the way they treated the sangha. Yeah, just horrible. And when I was in China, I met some nuns who had who told me that their nunnery was turned into a factory. And, you know, they had to stay, work in the factory. But that wasn't so bad. They, they, you know, when the Red Guard was really active, then they uh, you know they would, would make the the sangha wear these placards. You know how people have these wooden placards with the f- signs on front and back, you know, kind of saying, I'm the counter-revolutionary, bourgeois, Buddhist, or, you know, kind of... Criticizing themselves, they had to wear dunce caps and walk through the city like that. Yeah, I mean, this is what was going on in the Cultural Revolution. You know, I was really shocked when I was in Singapore. People don't know about the Cultural Revolution there. I mean, it was dreadful what went on. Yeah, and pe- parents were turning their children into the police, children were turning their parents in. You know, students were betraying their teachers and I mean the whole country was was crazy. Yeah. And so you think what would it be like to be born and have to live through all of that? And could you practice the Dharma in that kind of situation? Yeah. Very, very difficult. Extremely difficult. You know, you're risking your whole life. Okay, so having being able to live in a place where the dharma exists and you have the religious freedom to practice it, is is something very precious, you know, not to be taken for for granted. And then the the um, fourth one under the societal good fortune is the presence of the Buddhist followers. So a place. Where um, you have the Sangha community following the Buddha's teachings. Okay, so the place, yeah, where there's like-minded people who give you moral support and who inspire you in your practice. Yeah, so living in a place where there's the followers of the Buddha. So again, to ask ourselves, you know, do I have that condition? You know, right now we do, but you see, it's very interesting, you see many people who are really interested in the Dharma, but then they choose to live in a place where there's no Dharma support for them. Yeah? I mean, now they have internet and things like that and they can travel. But, it, you know, to really be surrounded by a, a community of followers, it's a very precious opportunity. And some people, you know, don't have that. For whatever reason, maybe financially or emotionally, well, who knows what they can't move to that kind of situation, or you know, family ties, whatever it is. Yeah. So having that that presence of the Buddhist followers that we can learn from and practice together. Yeah. And if you've had any experience of trying to practice alone by yourself, yeah. I mean, I lived alone as a Sangha member for many years and it's so much easier practicing together with other people. Yeah. And then the, the tenth uh, quality is uh, a, a place where there's uh, people with loving concern and compassion. So people who are who are benefactors, who will support us materially in our practice. Um, where there's dharma teachers, who, if you're ordained, you know, will make sure that you have the four requisites. Yeah, because we need to have food, clothing, shelter, and medicine in order to practice. Yeah, and so to live in a place where there's there's uh, benefactors and patrons, who believe in what we're doing and who will support us, because without those people. Then the alternative is that you have to put on lay clothes and grow your hair out and go get a job, and then you know that cuts into your to the time available to practice. Sometimes in a job, you you have to do things that are ethically misguided. Yeah, then you don't get to wear if you're a sangha member. You don't get to wear your robes. Yeah, so you're not sure anymore are you Sangha or are you lay because you're kind of on the fence there. So, you know, the presence of people who will support our way of life so we can really practice is, is one of the, the ten great fortunes. Yeah, and so that's why it's extremely important at the Abbey that we, you know, really um, treasure the, the support from the lay people who come here, because without them, you know, we would all be going into town working, doing some kind of job, and then when do you practice the Dharma? Okay, so we really um, owe a lot to the people who who help us. Yeah? Okay? Yeah?
1: This tenth one, how does that um, relate to... Well,
0: how does that one, th- that one also benefit lay people? Because it includes um, having teachers around who teach you, and everybody, whether you're lay or ordained, needs teachers. Yeah, and we need communities to practice with. Yeah, I mean, if you're one lay person. You can ask some of our, our lay friends who live in, I won't mention where, because they're listening on the other end here. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that, you know, they too want to practice, but, you know, and they're so lucky, they're so fortunate that there's the internet now. I mean, years ago, you live in the middle of a state or country, and there's you know there's no internet, there's no nothing. How are you? You know, you don't have access to teachers or any kind of guidance.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly in the community where you lived. How could you have, you know, have a rigorous Dharma practice going there? Yeah. So you were smart and you relocated.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, even like a decade and a half ago, I had an interest, but I didn't know
0: anywhere where I could go. Where you could go? Right. Okay. So, um, you know, to, to contemplate these, then you know, really uh, imagine not having those situations again, and and saying, and then coming back to who you are now, having those situations, and really let yourself feel tremendous gratitude. They say that that when you meditate on precious human life, uh, you should feel like a beggar who found a jewel. Okay. Or a, ch- a child who found a credit card and they're in the toy store. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that always
1: strikes me when I think about this is the rarity of stumbling upon the Buddha's teaching. Where I came from, also gives me great conviction in the, the power of the teachings, and the, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that gives the strongest that 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 I stumbled upon this and resonated with it. There's only way I can think about that is that I have known about it in past lives. Yeah. That's the only possible. Yeah. reason and so I
0: have great conviction because of that. yeah yeah so when you you see when we look at our own lives and see how really remarkable it was that we stumbled upon the Dharma and then you say this has to have had a cause yeah and then you realize it must have been something I did in a previous life so it really gives you very strong uh, conviction in the law of karma and of its effects and in the importance of uh, dedication prayers to steer the ripening of our good karma so it ripens in this kind of situation. Yeah, because there's a lot of people who create good karma and then they dedicate it so that they can be rich. <laughs> yeah, so that they can be famous, so that they can have a happy family. But somehow we were able to dedicate it so that we would meet the Dharma and be able to continue to practice. Yeah. So how fortunate it was, whoever we were in a previous life, that we had that way of thinking. And so we need to do that again this life, you know, and not just take the opportunity for granted. Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah. exactly. of all the 18, if you're missing one, nothing,
1: nothing yeah, happens.
0: you're lost. you're lost, you know. So it's not like, well then you only have half of a precious human life or something like that. No, it's just you can see any one of these just really cuts the opportunity to learn and practice. And so how important it is to dedicate to have all of them and to create the causes to have all of them. Think about how some of them are very connected too because I feel like for a
1: long time I had felt some interest.
0: Yeah. So you had you had spiritual curiosity and longing but you had wrong views and rebelliousness that kind of cut cut the opportunity to make use of that that longing and curiosity
1: kind of teachers to dispel the wrong views but also the wrong views
0: keeping Yeah <laughs> right yeah not having teachers to dispel the wrong views, but the wrong views prevented you to go from going to the teachers to start with. Yeah.
1: Going and try maybe things are changing over the time. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, be careful not to be too much into it and um it turn into it. And, yeah. But how much is helpful also in that regard to the teachings? Um,
0: yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about a, a, a situation where somebody has a lot of faith. They want to hear teachings. They go to a Dharma center. The, at the Dharma center maybe there's a lot of politics going along, a lot of discord, and that upsets the person's mind. And so, of course, they want to go away and they don't want to be near those people. But on the other hand, that's where you go to get teachings. Yeah. So in that kind of situation, yeah, what I recommend is you go for the teachings, you know, you, you if it's a teacher you have a good connection with, you form that connection, and then you don't get involved in any of the politics. And you just, you know, there's nothing that makes us get involved in politics except our own you know, mind that wants oh, what's going on here? What's going on there? And, yeah, but but you can just yeah, don't, don't get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're
1: talking about spiritual friends, maybe, remember the thing about the like, Kalamitra?
0: Is that referred to a spiritual friends or to a spiritual mentor? Okay, when they talk about a spiritual friend, a Kalyanamitra, yeah, it's, it's actually something that's very misunderstood in, uh, in Western Buddhism because it's translated as spiritual friend. Yeah? Like Geshe is virtuous friend, yeah? So we think spiritual friend. So then you think of somebody who's equal to you. But actually, the way the, the, way the Buddha was speaking about this when he said, uh, when Ananda said, it's half the, of the spiritual life, and the Buddha said, no, it's all of the spiritual life. The next sentence the Buddha said was referring to himself as the spiritual friend who would teach others so it's actually a term that refers to a teacher who's like a virtuous friend for you but often people make it seem like it's your friend in your in the dharma center yeah but you know and those friends are important and we should respect and cherish them but it's the our spiritual mentors, who are the real, real spiritual friends. Okay, so let's meditate on that. This precious human life, this whole week. Okay. Yeah. Yes. What?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, and uh, then we'll continue next week.